Okay, this morning, if you would turn in your scriptures to Matthew 25, we'll begin reading in 31 and continue to 46. Last week I mentioned as kind of a tack on to the Advent season, we would be looking at just some episodes from the life of Jesus, and last week we looked at some of the works of Jesus, and this morning we will look at some of the words of Jesus, beginning in chapter 25, starting in verse 31. I will be reading from the New American Standard. Please follow along. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Behold the kindness and severity of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again that you have not left us alone. Uh, You have not left us in our sin. You have not left us to our own devices, but you have come and you have given your son Jesus that we might know you, walk with you. Lord, one of the ways, one of the many ways that you build us up and strengthen us is through the word preached, and I pray that you would bless this preaching of your word this morning. And we look forward also to the table. Use these things, Lord, these ordinary means and accomplish extraordinary things among us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said, we we looked at the works of Jesus, and today we look at the words of Jesus. Don't shoot the messenger, please. Don't shoot the messenger. Some words of Jesus carry a certain weight to them. They can be harder than others, but I trust you. But I trust you will see by the end of this that the hardness sometimes accentuates the other side as well. And some things look more full, more real, more true to us when we see it in contrast. And that's partly what we're going to see this morning. I, I, tempt, I t- argued with myself over whether to start this way, what I'm about to do, because it may seem a little frivolous and we have such a grave topic in some sense, but I am going to start here because uh, the title of the sermon is Necessary Knowledge, but not all knowledge is equal, is it? Not all things are worth knowing, are they? 
Some things are just plain silly. Let me give a couple of examples. A snail can nap for three years. Okay, I was going to start again with a hamster has no white meat, but I've used that one. Okay. But a snail can nap for three years. The, the state among the United States closest to the continent of Africa would be, does anybody know? Maine. That actually caught me off guard. Maine goes so far east, it's actually closer to Africa. The heart of a shrimp is in its head. A group of lemurs is called a conspiracy. A group of porcupines is called a prickle. Cookie Monster. Now, every time I use an old reference, by the way, I think I'm connecting with the kids, but does anybody know the Cookie Monster anymore? Yeah, Roger, thank you. Roger. But what is Cookie Monster's real name? Sid. Can you imagine? That was a shock to me, and I grew up on the Cookie Monster. I had T-shirts. His name is Sid. Uh, In Switzerland, it's illegal to own just a single guinea pig. That's, that's environmentalism gone crazy. There are such communal creatures, it's considered cruel to own one. You can have as many as you want, you can't have one. It's illegal. Uh, in America, 7% of American adults think chocolate milk comes from a brown cow. You imagine. You imagine. And most college students, by the way, think eggs come, eggs come from factories. Isn't that amazing? Okay, there's more people killed by vending machines each year than by sharks. And 90% of shark attacks, by the way, are on men. Don't know how to explain that. Humans are the only animals with chins. And most people, most people, you probably heard this one before, I find it fascinating, most people cannot lick their elbows. Now, and I don't want to see anybody trying that during the sermon. It did give me an idea, though, for our next family fun night. We, we might have a contest. It said most, so someone can. Okay, we'll, we'll see what we can find. So, but does any of this information change your life? I mean, really. You know, there is a point at which even a search for knowledge, knowledge is good, is it not? But even Solomon said that the search for knowledge can be a vanity and a chasing after the wind, just like any other pursuit. There is a limit, and obviously some of it is just downright silly. It makes you wonder, Probably government grants, but who actually studies all this stuff? Well, let, let's, let's look at a different fact. God has appointed a day of judgment. It's a fact. If we take God's word seriously at all, we have to admit that there's a day of judgment coming. These are the words of Jesus this morning, not mine. The words of Jesus. Jesus actually spoke of the day of judgment quite often. This is just one example in this passage. There is a day of judgment coming when God will gather up all peoples and separate them and announce eternal destinies, which will then be actualized as we will proceed to one of two places. It's a true binary option. I know today it's very, very uh, popular in some circles to to say, you know, to talk about non-binary. And I... I, I always can't resist saying this. I watched a, a video this week of a non-binary transsexual priest in the Church of England having a prayer day for transvestite uh, visibility. That's not a priest. That's not a believer. That's probably not a church. There's a day of judgment coming, though. That can be relied upon. There is a day of judgment coming. Um, speaking of the day of judgment and the resultant 
separation of people into eternal blessedness or into eternal punishment, I know is not popular. The church, though, has a responsibility to keep speaking it because it's in the scriptures. I have been in the church my whole life. I have not been a believer my whole life. God had to do a work in me, but I've been in the church my whole life, and it seems that we don't talk about judgment and hell very much. We certainly don't focus on it on very many Sunday mornings. And if you've been in the church for a long time, you've probably seen that too. But for us to know this as a truth, to know this as a truth and soft sell it, is the greatest unkindness. God has revealed it for a reason. Jesus actually spoke about it a lot, and especially in our passage this morning. So let's look at our passage. We actually have... Yeah, it's a much shorter passage than last week, and we're just going to look at it in two basic parts, um, although the second part deals with two groups of people, part of a discourse. But we're going to look just at the first part, verses 30 through 33, 31 to 33, and then 34 to the end. So our passage, first of all, just generally this passage is related to others. Jesus has already mentioned the judgment to come in several parables before this point. He mentions the judgment to come just back in chapter 24, especially verses 30, 31. This is related to the the great white throne judgment we see in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. And each of those things adds a certain dimension to our understanding of the judgment to come. But having said all that, this passage appears only here in this form in all the Gospels. This is kind of unique to Matthew. So there's not as many passages for us to compare it to. Each adds something, but we're going to focus here this morning. Some think this passage is just a continuation of parables. After all, when Jesus is speaking of the kingdom, uh, starting in verse t- chapter 24, but through to verse 25, he, he uses parables to teach things about the kingdom or about the day that's to come and how we're not going to know exactly which day, although we ought to be paying attention to the signs so that we can kind of tell the seasons of life. But yet we don't know exactly when it's going to be. But this is not continuing as a parable. There is figurative language here we see in verses 32 and 33 where he speaks about separating people as if they were sheep and goats. So yes, some figurative language, but that's only to illustrate the point that there will be a separating. And so this this idea of the arrival of the king and the separation of people, that's that's to be taken as a literal truth, even though we use figurative language in some ways to explain it. And the rest of the passage gives us no hints that really it should be taken as a parable. And that's important. Because parables are not necessarily literal, although they teach a literal truth, but they are stories. And they, they, they're, they're almost more, po- more poetic in some ways because they're representative or they're Ill- illustrative. This morning, we are actually looking at these truths as literal. And really, just like the two parts of our passage, there's two truths. There is a judgment to come. There is a judgment to come. Thank God. Thank God. This should give comfort to God's people. Okay, because in this world, not so much in American Christianity, we have all existed as as Christians almost as if a favored class, and that has been part of our history. But in most of the world, when you become a believer and you take on the, the mantle of a disciple of Jesus, it's not like this. They suffer. They are deprived. They are cast out. They go without. They are looked down upon. Sometimes cost them family, jobs, careers, friends, status, everything. Okay, so for that, isn't it a comfort to know that there will be a day of judgment when all of God's promises will come true? And as a believer in Christ, you should take great comfort in that. As an, as an unbeliever, you should tremble. 
because we're looking at the facts from Jesus' own mouth, that there will be a day of separation and not everybody enters into the blessedness of the Father. Some go the other way. And we will see that as we go. So, two parts. Our, our text today will be looked at as the judgment and then simply the announcements or the assignments or the, the explanation, whatever word you want to use. The judgments, the announcement. First of all, the judgment. Starting in verse 31, we see that the Son of Man, which is clearly Jesus, Son of Man was his favorite name for himself in the Gospel of Matthew. His favorite name for himself. And it's clearly the Son of God, the Son of Man. In verse 34, he refers to God as my Father. So this is Jesus speaking. And it is in fulfillment of the prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7, which I thought I had marked. I do. 7, verses 13 and 14. I always say Jesus speaking here, calling himself the Son of Man, has to do with prophecy in Daniel, and then we don't read it. So this morning, I am going to take just a minute and reading it. This is Daniel talking about his vision. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Man, that's what we see here, the Son of Man. I'm afraid sometimes after Christmas we get stuck still thinking of Jesus as that baby in the manger, like we talked last week, wrapped up in rags, laid in a trough. That's not how he's coming back. An eternal dominion. And he shows up. The Son of Man comes in his glory, not in his humility. Not You know, the first time Jesus came, it almost seemed like a secret mission, except for the one group of angels told some shepherds. But it was very quiet, very hush-hush. That's not the way he's coming back. The Son of Man is coming in all his glory. And all the angels with him, all of them, not a handful, not a choir, all of them. I don't know how many that is, but, but think of the glory. And all the angels with him. And he will sit on his throne of glory, not a trough. This is a very different picture. All the nations will be gathered before him. We see back in chapter 24 that this is probably the angels going to the four corners of the earth. And they're bringing all these people. So the Son of Man comes. He is now, by the way, crowned king. And this passage in verse 34 and down in verse 40 is the only place where Jesus refers to himself as king. As just to emphasize it. The king is coming back. The king is coming in all his glory. And everybody will be gathered before him. It's a glorious kingdom. He will sit on his glorious throne. He has an eternal dominion. He's not wrapped in rags. This is more like the transfiguration. Remember when he took just a couple of disciples up on the mountain and he was transfigured before them and he shone in bright light. They couldn't even look at him. But that pales. There were no angels. He wasn't seated upon a throne. It was so temporary. Now it's an eternal dominion. This is the king coming in glory. All people are gathered. And by the way, this is not an invitation. All the nations will be gathered up before him. That is a passive verb. They will be gathered. It's not like the parable of the, the one who sent them out and invited them to the wedding and they all made their excuses. And neither will your excuses fly. Okay, You will be gathered up and brought into the king's presence, gathered up before him, in which they are passive. It is not an invitation. The time has come. There will be no more delay. 
There is a point fixed in the future when there will be no more delay. Now, Hebrews tells us that if we live, if we die before this time, that it's appointed unto men to die once, and after that, this day. After that, judgment. But for, for those who live long, you know, the day is still coming. There is a day appointed as a day of judgment. And when we are gathered, when we are gathered, then all individuals will be sorted or separated. This is very much parallel to the parables of the wheat and the tares, the dragnet, which, by the way, are the only, only, don't want to go too far, uh, of the parables, these are two of them, which talk about the angels doing the gathering and doing the work and bringing everybody before Jesus. Remember the wheat and the tares, where there's weeds and wheat growing in the same field, and they say, should we go pull up the weeds? He said, no, let them all live together. Let them all grow together. But he did appoint a day when the harvest would come. And we have the angels gather them all up, and then there would be a separating. And where did the tares end up? Where did the weeds go but into the fire? Very parallel to what we're doing. Same thing with the dragnet. The dragnet is just a way of fishing. I'm not a fisherman. So, but it's a way of fishing where you gather them all up at once. You drag a net through the sea, and whatever it brings up, it brings up. And so then the angels gather them all together, and there's a separating. And the useless fish, there are unedible fish, or at least fish you recommend you don't eat, right? And where do they end up? They end up thrown in the fire. Very much synonymous with what we're looking at today. Now, those are parables. We are not in parable today. All individuals will be gathered up and sorted. Sorted, the word for sorted. He will separate them one from another. They will be sorted. They will be separated. Um, Again, they are passive in this. This is a place being assigned to them, and it requires an experienced shepherd. That's something I learned this week. Differences between sheep and goats. Because at certain times of the season, especially after a sheep has been shaved, or sometimes goats get a little hairy, it's hard to tell them just at a quick glance. Okay, But with our shepherd, you know, there's no mistake. Um, sheep, by the way, have a little cleft in their upper lip. Goats don't. Some sheep can have horns, but they're different than goats. They have different tails. But they can be identified and separated, but it sometimes takes some experience. And this is usually done at night to keep them separated because the goats are not as good about warming themselves, Okay, which is interesting because the goats end up in the eternal fire. So then warmth is not an issue. So all individuals gathered up, sorted up, and they, you belong to one group, and to belong to one group is to not belong to another because you just don't jump back and forth. You are somehow identified, labeled, set apart. And there's the right hand and the left hand. Now, the right hand, Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, the place of honor and glory uh, when he's in heaven. When he comes back, you notice he sits on his own glorious throne, exercising dominion, ruling over all things. But right and left is not just a place of honor and then a place of less, less honor. It is a place of honor and a place of cursing. These things are set as opposites to each other in our passage today. And so that's where we stand. And at this point, the judgment is done. It's over. The people have been separated. There's nothing to do. There's no do-overs at this point. If you find yourself among a bunch of goats, you should be concerned. You know, there's, there's no making it right anymore. Okay? There's no making it right. But what, what is it that makes a distinction? What causes somebody to be in the right hand or the left hand? Well, that's what we begin to see as we go on down through our passage, starting in verse 34. We're not going to read it again. 
uh, it's not necessary in due to time. But the king now addresses each group. And it is somewhat repetitious. There's a parallel of passages here. He addresses one group, he addresses the other, but there are significant differences to where they end up really as opposites. So it is somewhat repetitious, somewhat parallel. He speaks, they come up with a question, he responds, and yet ultimately they are opposite and their ends are opposite. So he gives us this comparison contrast. Let me highlight just a couple of words. To the first group, to the sheep, he says, come. That's a word of invitation. (laughs) That's the word you want to hear. Come. Come with me. Remember Jesus said, I'm going to go away and prepare a place, and if I do so, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. Come. Come. It's a beautiful word. Simple word, but beautiful word. And to the other group, though, what's he say? Depart. Depart. Get away. Go on. There's a sense in which this word can mean you just keep on walking on that path you have chosen because there's no rescue for you here. Keep on walking. Remember the wide and the narrow path. You know, narrow is the path that leads to the gates of heaven, but wide is the road that leads to destruction. He says, you keep on going. But at the same time, it's harsher than that. He's saying, get away. Get away. I never knew you. Come. Depart. Second set of words, blessed, cursed, blessed. Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Blessed. To be in the position of the blessed ones and not the cursed ones. Blessed of the Father, whereas to the other group he does say, You, you, depart from me, ye cursed ones. And as if that's not bad enough then, the blessed are told, they are commanded once again, it's written as a command, inherit the kingdom. Come and inherit The kingdom, not just the kingdom, but the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom. And yet to the other group, what's he say? Depart into the fire. The kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Now, I actually got hung up on this point as I was studying because we touches upon the doctrine of election and God's appointment and all that he does before the foundation of the world, before he does anything, he decrees it, and then he brings it about. But even though it touches upon that truth, that is not the truth being presented here. Now, I am a card-carrying Calvinist, Reformed preacher, all those different things. I believe in all those things, but that's not what's being taught here, even though it does touch upon it. What is being taught here is the measure of the Father's love for those that are his. He has not just begun to love you. Gerhardus Voss was an old-time theologian who said, the surest proof that God will not ever stop loving you is that he never began. He has set his love upon his people. He considers them the blessed ones. And everything he does for us is the overflowing of this love. Come, come, you who are blessed of the Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared from you from before the foundation. It's a measure of the Father's love. And to the group that is not the blessed but the cursed, what's he say? Go into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if the one is a measure of the Father's love, what's the other one? Okay? The measure of the wrath of God being poured out. It's an example. The, the place that you go was not even necessarily prepared for the human beings, but for the devil and his angels, the arch enemy, the unclean, the spirits who rebelled in heaven. You go there. You go there. So these things are a measure of the Father's love for his people, and this is also a measure of the end that sin and unbelief deserves. And it is the natural end, the outcome of the path chosen. 
So the summary statement to this comes in verse 46, where he sums it up. He speaks of the goats first because he just got done talking to the goats, and he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment. Some people think that sounds so unfair. I mean, there is a few called annihilationism where if you don't make it into heaven, God just simply wipes you out. And this remembers me too, reminds me too of something also from the Lord of the Rings. I'm no Lord of the Rings expert, but in one of the movies, they were talking about facing a dragon and they said, no big deal. Bright light, flash of fire, it's over. And there are some people who say, well, I'm going to go my own way and do what I want because that's more important than just a quick flash of fire in bright light and it's over. Eternal destruction. Eternal punishment. Just like the eternal blessedness. See, there's a certain equivalency here that reinforces the other. It's an eternal problem. You can't deal with it, though you think you might. It's a bad place. It's a bad end. And our hope for you this morning is that you will not end there. We don't, you know, this is not meant to be a harsh sermon. Christ the King, here at Christ the King, we love people. (laughs) But that's why we're telling you this. That's why we're telling you this. So our summary statement, eternal punishment and eternal life, and it is the consistent teaching of Scripture, this this idea of the everlasting and the eternal punishment. Jesus elsewhere, he often speaks of those who go to this place. Their worm never dies, and the fire never ceases. Their worm, you know, that's nasty. Their worm never dies. And these are the words of Jesus. So, Is there something that determines who goes where? Is there something that can be known, can be done? Well, one, you can't earn it. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to be done. Um, Before I give you the answer, let's say what this is not. Some people come to this passage, and it's probably become the predominant view of today, um, especially among the more liberal-minded. There are some who see that if we just do all the right works, that we're going to jump from the goats to the sheep. Because, face it, Jesus said, you did this. You did this. He, he mentioned six different things, and the people that responded well ended up in heaven. And so they make it, all we got to do is this. And they build their entire theology and ministry off it, and it becomes, up nothing, it becomes nothing more than simply ministry to the poor and the outcast. And those are all good things. Okay, but there is no such thing as a salvation by works. You can never do enough. If you started today and did all that you could do and did it perfectly and had the perfect motives and everything from now to the end of your life, it doesn't take care of what you've done before. And it doesn't take care of how you were born because you were born in sin. We are a sinful race. Okay, we cannot make up for it. There is no salvation by works. That is a contradiction of everything else in the scriptures. And I would point you to places like Romans 3. I would point you to Titus 3. He saved us not on the basis of works we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the working of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it is not a salvation by works. There is a better Understanding, I think it's better. I just think it's a little, it's still incomplete. And that is that these works of mercy, charity, hospitality are simply showing forth the fruits of the new creation. When God comes in and he renovates somebody and makes them new from the root up, this new life that he implants lives a new life and does good deeds and takes pity on the poor. Yes, that's all true. And in this case, we see the works that are listed as evidential rather than causal, so that God's priority, God comes and works. And that's true, and I affirm that as a truth, but I don't think that's what's being taught here either. I think that one comes closer. That's involved. 
but it's incomplete. I do think there is a translational key to be seen in verse 40. The king answering, when they asked, when did we do all these things? The king said, I say that when you did it, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I think this identifies a specific group of people. This is not just the poor in general. This is not just the suffering and the outcast in general. But rather, these are the people of God. This is the interpretation I think is best, which is admittedly a minority view today. But in the history of the church, I believe, was the majority view. I will look into it further. (laughs) But I do believe that's true. So it is not works done to a random group of people. It is not due to a group of unnamed people, but is specifically a people identified by the king as his brothers, the least of these, his brothers. Well, in the book of Matthew, the word brothers, when not speaking of literal brothers and sisters, always means those who are the spiritual kin of Jesus. These are part of the family of God. They have somehow become united to him and are his. They are his brothers. And so, and this is true throughout Matthew as well as other places in the New Testament. If you were to look at chapter 12, 46, and 50, especially verse 50, where, where Jesus' family came because they had seen the crowds and they saw the turmoil around, and they thought, well, we need to go get him, bring him home for a while, and maybe have an intervention. Who knows? Okay, but, he, but when they said, hey, your mothers and brothers are outside, he said, yes, but who are my mothers and brothers? Right? But those who do the will of my Father. I think this matters here. It is those who do the will of my Father. It is those who have become disciples of Jesus, who have united themselves to him. These are the brothers in view that people are doing good deeds and works of hospitality and such to him. Well, by the way, that is also true of the words translated the least of these or the littlest of them. Uh, Those are also identified, especially in Matthew, but throughout even as the people of God. You know, sometimes he's speaking of children, sometimes he's speaking of his disciples, um, but they're always talking about the people of God. So it is the good things done to the brothers. And this is what is evidential, that they are also the disciples of Christ. So to receive a messenger. You remember Jesus gathered his disciples, sent them out, said, go to the towns where I will be coming. He says, and if they receive you, good. Pronounce a blessing on them. If not, what are they to do? Shake off the dust of their garments, you know, and it will be a witness against them. And Jesus even pronounced judgment, said some of those cities it will be worse for in the judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah by how they received or rejected the servants of God, the messengers of God, those who would go and tell the message of Jesus, Jesus' disciples. So to receive the messenger of Jesus is to receive Jesus himself. And so it is to identify or to become part of the people of God. Let me give you a quick illustration. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 16. You may not need to. You may know the story. But Acts chapter 16, we're coming to Philippi. And they come across a lady named Lydia from Thyatira. Starting in verse 14, she was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Now, in this case, wasn't Paul and his traveling companions those who were strangers? and needed some hospitality, those who were probably poor. If you go through Paul's description of himself and his ministry in 2 Corinthians 11, I believe, you're going to find Paul list all these things. I was sometimes, I went without 
I spent, I spent nights out in the open. I was often in the deep. I was often hungry. I was often outcast. I was often persecuted. All these different things. This, these are the things that identify Christ's people as their own mission. And so it is, it, is, it is the works of love done by those who have become Christ's disciples as they unite with him, as they identify with them, and it is these works done to one another. This is the love that overflows from our relationship with Christ to one another. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples in that you love one another. That's what's being seen here. Okay, so it is not just the poor in general. It is the receiving of the messengers of Jesus, which is to receive him himself. And then the love we have for one another overflows into works of hospitality and mercy. And by the way, it doesn't stop there. Just because I said this doesn't have to do with the poor in general, the church has always had the reputation of being good to the poor. I believe it was Julian the Apostate who just said, look, they take care of all their own poor and they even come and get ours. Back in their day, abortion was to place a baby out on the back wall behind the estate and just expose them and leave them for dead or out near the garbage. And the Christians were noted because they'd come by and scoop them up and take them. Okay? It's not that we do not do works of mercy. It's that the works of love overflow first to the household of God. And then they overflow and they continue and they go beyond there. So, a summary of what we see here, it is the king's people, his messengers in view. To receive them and their message about him is to receive him, the king, Jesus. And it is the gospel of the kingdom and this king that matters. And it is your attitude or your response to this gospel, this message about Jesus, that makes the distinction among sheep and goats. So it is not a salvation by works. It is a salvation either by belief, faith, or unbelief. And it's your response to Jesus that matters. It is the response to the gospel. So what is the gospel? Now, you know where I'm going to start because we say this here all the time. I've heard Seth say it. I don't know if he came up with it first, me came up with it first. I got it from J.I. Packer. But the gospel summed up in its most concise form is God saves sinners. God saves sinners. God, this God who is holy, righteous, and just, and who will by no means clear the guilty. He is all of that. In fact, this is where Martin Luther got hung up because he recognized that this is what the Bible teaches about God. He recognized that God is all that. He even called God often the all-terrible. The all-terrible. And it's just a certain greatness or dread or fear, reverence out of control. The all-terrible. That's what God was to Luther, and he tried to be good. He went and joined a monastery. He went and did all of his indulgences. He spent whatever it was. He tried to make himself good, but he knew his sin. He knew he wasn't good. See, that's God at work. And if you feel some sort of sense of conviction about that today, you know that before this terrible God you can't stand, then listen to what's coming. Because this all-terrible God is also all-merciful. See, we have a hard time hating and loving at the same time. But God is God. God can be all terrible and all merciful. And Martin Luther couldn't understand how. How can he be until he looked into the face of Jesus? Jesus is how he can be all terrible and all merciful. The scriptures tell us in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, that's God's heart too. Not just his judgment over sin, but that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. And he has ordained it that it's in Christ. 
Christ solves the problem of the all-terrible God and the all-merciful God because he in his flesh, he, the one warning today from heaven in his word, he in his flesh bore the sins of sinners. He was sinless. He didn't die for his own sins, but he died. He died for the sins of others. And his perfect righteousness is imputed to you. That means it's counted to you. That means you don't deserve it. It's given as a gift. He earned, established a perfect righteousness, and since he was God himself, it's sufficient for the sins of all. He took the sins of sinners, and he paid the price in his flesh, and his perfect righteousness was granted to God's people. And what must you do? (laughs) You must believe this. That's all. You must believe this. That's the gospel. You have to believe in this great exchange. He takes sin from the sinners and dies for it himself, and we receive his perfect righteousness, which qualifies us even to gather here this morning into the presence of God himself and offer up praises, which he actually finds to be pleasing to the ear because of Jesus. It's an amazing thing we do here on Sunday mornings, an amazing thing. And what you have to do is believe. It's that simple. It's not a matter of your works of mercy, although these will probably come. It's not a matter of a new attitude towards your neighbor, although that will probably change. What it's a matter of is belief or unbelief. You notice in the group of people, the goats, that he did not accuse them of what they did. I mean, they're sinners. We all know they're sinners, but it's what they didn't do. Okay, but ultimately, the big thing they didn't do is they didn't believe. They heard the message of Christ, and they ignored it. To ignore it is to reject it. Don't ignore today. If you hear something in the back of your head that won't let you leave, <laughs> listen. Listen. It's belief or unbelief that matters. And what he announces in this text is the results of those who have believed and who have unbelieved. So isn't this a great kindness? What would, not be, what would be a kindness is if you got to the peak of this bridge that goes over the Wabasso Causeway up here and somebody didn't tell you that the other half of the bridge was gone. That would not be a kindness. And then they had the answer as to, okay, what do I need to do? Well, you go take another bridge. Christ is our bridge. He gets us from our sinful condition reconciled to our Father in heaven so that there, there need not be any more fear. Now, some knowledge is more, more important than other knowledge, is it not? I knew a young person one time who'd had a rough life, and trying to share the gospel with some people is harder at times than others. And uh, admittedly, their, their troubles in life amounted up to where I felt sorry for them and said, no wonder you reject this. <laughs> you know, her, her traveling evangelist father was a womanizer, led to a divorce, led to a broken home. She lost a brother to cancer, you know, all, you know, all the time while this, this Christian example... You know, so you, so you hear stories like that, and you think, oh, well, this person's justified in their unbelief. Okay, from a human perspective, yeah, she's got a right to be angry, right? And all I could think to say, but there's a judgment coming. What about you as an individual? Not what they did to you. I am so sorry. There are some, there are some people here that suffer, that live such lives as I cannot fathom being in your shoes. Mine has not been that. But you've got to somehow figure a way to put all that aside. See, the enemy will use those things to distract you and keep you blind. But God offers his son. 
for your sins. If you would just believe, you don't, you don't have to end up where you're headed. So, not all truths are of equal value. Some knowledge is more necessary than others. You need to know this. You need to hear this. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, this feels so inadequate, I have to admit. Help me to believe this morning that the preached word never goes out void. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your means. We thank you for the table we're about to partake of. I pray that you would make these things all that you intend for them to be for us as we look to you in worship and wonder, in wonder at your love for fallen people. Lord, send forth your spirit. Apply these things where you will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.